next three weeks as we're opening up this new year, we're going to be going through a series, and it's based on a book called Hand Me Another Brick by Charles Swindoll. And this is a guide for dealing with your spouse. Just kidding. Sometimes you may want another brick. But it's a book about character and achieving God-sized goals. I read this book for the first time as part of a Purpose Institute class a few years ago. And it really impressed me. And I was struck by how well it took spiritual principles and made them practical. And then as I read it again, it just stuck with me, so I went back to it. As I read it again, it was preaching at me all over again. So truly, this is a book and these are principles that never get old. And I also thought that this was a good study for the first of the year, because this time of year we're all making New Year's resolutions. Well, how can we be better? And so I was thinking about this, and the old joke with New Year's resolutions, of course, is that you don't keep them. And so I found a few examples of New Year's resolutions. So some people are very realistic with their goals, and you'll see it. My New Year's resolution is to stop lying to myself about making lifestyle changes. That's probably a very realistic New Year's resolution. However, some people have very good intentions, and you'll see it on this next one. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to exercise every day. I'm going to go on a diet and stick to it. Is that cake? So we may have the best of intentions. Some people instead accept failure as inevitable, and they plan accordingly. The little rabbit in the cartoon, his New Year's Eve resolution saying, number one, lose weight. Number two, Mary Scarlett Johansson. And number three, find the lost city of Atlantis. And he tells his friend, well, if I got to fail, I'm going to fail big. Sometimes, however, being offended is the best way to deal with questions about your resolutions. And the timeless wisdom of Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin says to Hobbes, resolutions, me? Just what are you implying? That I need to change? Well, buddy, as far as I'm concerned, I'm perfect the way I am. So if you need, if anyone's asking you about your New Year's resolution and you need an answer, that might be the best one to pick. For those of you who are tech savvy among us, this might be a great answer. My New Year's resolution, I'll probably keep it at 1280 by 1024 like always. Thanks for asking. <laughs> the three people who know computer resolution are laughing. <laughs> if you're confused about what exactly a New Year's resolution is, I think our last cartoon sums it up pretty well. What exactly is a New Year's resolution? It's a to-do list for the first week of January. However, the New Year is a time for setting goals for ourselves. No matter how much we pick fun at it, it is kind of nice because it's a clean slate. It's an opportunity to say, what do I want to do better this year? And if you need one, modeling the principles in this book would be a great New Year's resolution. And it doesn't just give us a goal, which is great for me because I have no trouble setting goals or having ideas about what I want to do. My problem is that I have to have a schedule and a plan that breaks it into smaller milestones or I won't ever accomplish anything. And so what this book does is breaks down eternal principles into practical and applicable pieces for our lives. And it's a character study of the man Nehemiah, who's a smaller, lesser-known character in the Old Testament. There's a book that bears his name, but not a lot of studies are done on him. However, this book teaches us the timeless lessons of prayer, discipline, wisdom, sensitivity to the Spirit of God, and dealing with opposition, just to name a few. Nehemiah shows us how to relate to a touchy boss, to balance faith in God with personal planning, to handle discouragement and promotion, and to deal with criticism. Sounds like pretty modern problems, doesn't it? Something that's not set just to the Old Testament. This is the story of the man that God used to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He was a businessman. He was a successful politician in the ancient Middle East. He possessed an exceptional personal philosophy, and his life demonstrates his values. He lived it. He didn't just talk about it. He lived his values. His story details the rise of a godly man from obscurity to national recognition. But it's also a story detailing what true godly character looks like. And it gives us character bricks that we may use to build and model our own lives in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. 
Just like the wall in Jerusalem was built a little at a time by persistent workmen, so our lives are built day by day, moment by moment, and decision by decision. And I think that we would all agree that our world today is in desperate need of strong people of character. Maybe not. And if you think that everything is fine in the world today, that's great. I would just like to borrow your rose-colored glasses until the Lord comes back. Please, that would be great. But we see and hear it in the news. Creation itself is groaning for redemption. There's natural disasters everywhere. I believe it's more difficult because the atmosphere in which we live is so far removed from basic principles of morality and caring for others like you would care for yourself. We need the character-building bricks from the story of Nehemiah. They are modeled for us in succession as Nehemiah completes his life's work. And that work was the monumental project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was just an ordinary guy who was used to accomplish an extraordinary goal. Teddy Roosevelt once described himself this way. He's simply a plain, ordinary man, highly motivated. And this is also true of Nehemiah. He was plain and ordinary, yet he was highly motivated. And he was motivated to do a job for God in spite of the many difficult circumstances surrounding it. But before we jump into our story of Nehemiah, we're going to gain some context. So today's going to be a little bit of a history lesson, so just buckle your seatbelts. We're going to give a background of the time period and the circumstances that he was living in. So the book of Nehemiah is written about 425 B.C. And so we're going to go back and make sure that all of us are on the same page. It's going to be a very quick run-through. Mallory, if you want to go ahead and put up that first Old Testament timeline, you're going to see kind of the events that we're going through. We're going to start with an event that we should all be familiar with, and that is creation, the start of it all. Just so we're all on the same page, we'll start at the beginning. Sounds like a good idea, right? So God creates Adam and Eve. They sin. The world as we know it in its flawed state, flawed state is thrown into chaos that leads to eventual destruction. People continue on until the time of Noah. And at that point, humanity has become so perverted that God decides to start over again. Reminds me of Luke chapter 17 and verse 26, where it says, just as it, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man when the Lord comes again. I believe that we are living in the last days. Amen. And it is going to take the character of a man like Nehemiah to stand in the face of evil, untruth, and a world that is trying to snuff out every principle and every protection that is found in God's word and a relationship with him. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, it tells us about the state of the world at the time of Noah. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Verse 7 says, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Then in verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Humanity is given another chance because of the character of one man. After Noah, the history of the Jewish people of the Bible begins with Abraham. So fast forward to about 2000 B.C., God calls Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. We go through that lineage and the stories we've heard in Sunday school a hundred times. And the Jews moved to Egypt during a famine, during the time of Joseph. Eventually, they are enslaved by the Egyptians until God raises up Moses to bring his people out of bondage. And they journey through the wilderness to Canaan. Under Joshua, they fight and defeat the opposing armies to claim the promised land. And so about a thousand years later, Israel becomes a nation under Saul. This is the kingdom of Israel. They gain global significance. They become a global superpower under Saul, David, and Solomon. David ushers in the golden age of Israel. This is the time when their country has the most land. They have a great economy. They have a strong army. They are a force to be reckoned with. They go from obscurity, from being slaves, to suddenly being one of the most powerful nations in the then known world. 
However, the kingdom declines during Solomon's reign to the point that the kingdom splits after he dies. They have a civil, civil war, and the ten northern tribes revolt. We split into the northern kingdom of Israel. It's ten tribes. Their capital is in Samaria under King Jeroboam. The southern kingdom is Judah, two tribes, and it's the capital in Jerusalem. And the king is Solomon's son, Rehoboam. So this is where we are. After they split, they begin to fall apart internally. They have no strong religion, no strong character that is guiding them. And the nations that the Israelites originally conquered going into Canaan begin to revolt, and they begin to take back the land. And eventually, Israel and Judah are both small kingdoms susceptible to the attacks of stronger empires. So then in 722 B.C., the Assyrians conquer Israel, the northern kingdom. And in order to maintain control, I didn't know this, but this is interesting to me, what the Assyrians would do is when they took over somebody, they would scatter them. So they didn't leave you all in one place. They just scatter you all out throughout their empire because then they can make sure that the people they just took over don't revolt. So what do they do? They spread them apart. And so the tribes of the northern kingdom are known as the ten lost tribes of Israel because once they're spread out throughout the Assyrian culture, all their culture, their religion, any of their defining characteristics are lost while they adopt the practices of those who conquered them. And to me, this is one of the saddest stories of the Old Testament because this is a majority of the people of Israel. This is ten tribes. I mean, the other kingdom only had two. This one had ten. This is a lot of people. This group, this group that God singled out to be a distinctive witness of his power just vanishes. They're just gone. They're lost. They're the ten tri lost tribes of Israel. And to me, it's just the end of the story. It kind of feels like you're, you know, left with a cliffhanger there, that suddenly they're, they just disappear, and this nation that had so much promise is suddenly gone. So then going to the southern kingdom in 586 B.C., about 200 years later, the kingdom of Judah suffers the same fate and is conquered by Babylon under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the Babylonian captivity that we're familiar with from the stories of Daniel and the three Hebrew boys, just to put this in context for you. They're taken over. This is about the time of Daniel. Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 18 details this captivity, and this is describing Jerusalem, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. Verse 19, and they burnt the house of God, and break down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. The protection of the city was broken down, the wall. The wall was what protected Jerusalem. All of the fortified buildings are destroyed. All of the palaces are destroyed. And the valuable items are carried away. And the people of Judah are taken back to Babylon. And this is the picture of a ruined nation. What was once glorious and powerful is now broken rubble and an enslaved people. In fact, Psalm chapter 137 was written during this time. In verse 1, it says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. They're speaking of Jerusalem. They're speaking of their home. Verse 2, We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. In verse 3, For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. Their captors say, Sing to us. You're known as singers. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Your famous musicians, you know, your king, David, he was a great singer and a great songwriter. Sing us your songs. But in verse 4, they say, How shall we sing the Lord's songs in a strange land? This is a psalm of homesickness. They want to go back to Jerusalem. They're captive in a place that they weren't meant to be. And the Jews who lived were sent over 800 miles to Babylon and lived as slaves. The difference between the northern and the southern kingdom is that the Babylonians didn't spread everybody out. So the reason these two tribes stayed around and their culture and their heritage was preserved was that they were all sent together. So this whole group stays together, becomes a community in 
Babylon away from Jerusalem. History repeated itself, and just as Israel was enslaved in Egypt, they were once again slaves to a foreign power. But thank God, he has a plan, and he takes care of his own. Amen? And Daniel finds favor with the kings. So even when the nation of Babylon is conquered by the Medes and the Persians, and it's a hairy thing because you have all of these guys in the Old Testament, all these kingdoms, one kingdom's great and then another kingdom's great, and they're all just fighting each other. So you never know, are going to know if you're going to live through the next king or not. But Daniel still remains an advisor to the king. If you put up that next timeline of Ezra and Nehemiah, you can see it here um, on your far left where it says Nebuchadnezzar 605. That's the Babylonian captivity when it starts. And you'll see in green up there, it's showing where Daniel is. He lives through all of the Babylonian empire. Then they're taken over by the Medes and the Persians. And God favors him. And he still remains as an advisor to the kings. They see his wisdom. They see the hand of God on his life and recognize it. And they keep him around. He's a pretty smart guy. He seems to be, you know, handy in a tight spot. Let's, let's keep this guy Daniel around. In Darius, that you see Darius 1, 523. That's the Darius the king, is the king that we read about in the account of Daniel in the lion's den. And Cyrus, the Persian who overthrew Babylon, was used of God to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah that the temple would be rebuilt. I'm so thankful that God doesn't depend on using just his own people, that he can use whoever he wants to accomplish his purpose. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 22, it details this. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord, this is telling us why, why this happened, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. Here's what happened. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, verse 23, Thus saith Cyrus, the king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me. And he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem. The Lord was speaking to Cyrus. Cyrus recognized and had humility and recognized the Lord has given me this kingdom. And he has spoken to me to build him a house. Where? Not in Babylon. In Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And who is there among you of all his people? Who's left? Who's originally from Jerusalem? Raise your hands. Let me find out who you are. The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. He begins to send them back to their home to rebuild the temple, to rebuild their place of worship. Cyrus was not a believer, but God is not limited to working through only his people. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. My situation might not be how I would prefer it. I might lose all faith in the people that govern me and the people who are over me, but I never have to lose faith in my God because he's the one who controls who's in charge. So no matter what happens, I can be at peace because the king's heart or the president's heart or the congress's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And as the rivers of water, he turns it how he wants. God's ultimate plan was to bring the Jews back to their land. And he accomplished his purpose in spite of and even through, that's the most beautiful part of this story, even through Israel's captors, they began to fulfill the purpose of God. And the Jews go back to Israel, or to Jerusalem, excuse me, in three groups. Mallory, if you'll shoot up that next timeline. There's a lot of timelines today. You guys are going to feel like you're looking at a textbook. But I'm a very visual thinker, so this helps me put it in perspective. So what you're going to see here, it starts with, on the left-hand side, is the monarchs of, of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And then the split of the two kingdoms, scattered by the Assyrians in the northern kingdom, the Babylonian exile in the southern kingdom. And those three names on the right are the three men who lead captives back to Jerusalem. First, Zerubbabel. I thought I had a tough name. That poor kid. He learned the alphabet with his name. Zerubbabel takes a group back at the beginning, and you'll see on the second timeline, that's about 537 B.C. He takes a group back. Eighty years later, Ezra, 
another book of the Old Testament, is in charge of taking back more captives. And then 13 years after that is when Nehemiah brings back a third group to Jerusalem. So the book of Ezra details the rebuilding of the temple, the house of God. The law returns under Ezra. And the book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall. They went into the city, and as they came back, their first priority was the house of worship. They built the house of God. But the temple and the city were without protection for 90 years until a man ordained of God to lead this project was ready and moved on by God to accomplish this purpose. And this is the focus of our study, Nehemiah. Nehemiah had three main roles in his life. First, he was a cupbearer to the king. Second, he was the builder of the wall. And finally, he was the governor of the city of Jerusalem. And each role shows us the character of Nehemiah in a very unique way. And we'll begin today with his life as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Again, we have the best names in the Old Testament. If you're ever stumped on what to name a kid, just go to the Old Testament. Nobody will have the name, I guarantee you. And you can just, you know, be hated by your child for the rest of their life as they try to spell out their gigantic name. But today we're going to look, have a detailed look at chapters 1 and 2 of Nehemiah. And please don't look at all of the chapters in Nehemiah. There's 13 of them, in case you were wondering. And panic and think that we're going to be here for the next six weeks doing a detailed study of every chapter of the book of Nehemiah. I assure you that's not the case. Today is the most in-depth that we're going to be going verse by verse because these two chapters cover a lot of time in Nehemiah's life. So please do not panic. Don't be frightened. We're not going to be here until July talking about Nehemiah. But verse 1, we'll start at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Nehemiah begins here. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month of Chislu in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace. Now, Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king, again. And this may not sound like a glamorous position. He's in the palace, that's pretty cool, but what does this mean? This, however, was a vital role in the king's court. The cupbearer was one who tasted the food and wine before the king ate or drank anything. Now, this doesn't sound like a very enviable job to me. Like, what, are you, what, what is your job description? Well, you know, I make sure nothing's poisoned for the king before he eats it. I could die any day. I could die in one of three or five meals, however many he's eating, at any time. That doesn't really sound like the most enviable job position to me. However, it was very important, and it was a security measure against anyone who tried to poison the king. It was also a unique position of influence and familiarity with the king. Nehemiah and the king would get to know each other very well. And honestly, that makes sense, because if this guy is the only thing that's standing between me and death by a spiked chicken, I'd be pretty chummy with him, too. You know, I'd want him to make sure, okay, make sure... Yeah, you're sure you tasted it. You sure you stirred up the drink before you tasted it? Okay, did you get a piece of all of the chicken? Like, did you try that over there? I want to make sure that I'm not going to die. I don't want that guy to be mad at me. I want him to be my friend if he's eating the food to make sure I'm not going to die. So because of this, the cupbearer has a lot of influence with the king, and he could put in a good word for people who wanted the king's favor. An example would be the cupbearer who speaks to Pharaoh about Joseph. It was the king's taster, the guy who was tasting his food and wine, is the one who tells Pharaoh, hey, I know a guy in prison named Joseph who can interpret your dreams. And the result is Pharaoh brings Joseph in. So obviously this isn't just another servant. This guy has a lot of influence. But no matter the importance of his rank in Babylon, Nehemiah's heart was in Jerusalem. He was at the center of the then-known world. This is a place of activity and excitement. However, Nehemiah never forgot the promise of God. He wasn't distracted by the trappings of slavery, no matter how alluring they might have been. He lived in the Washington, D.C. of his day, to give you a context. He had a position of influence, but he never forgot his most important title as a child of God. And his eyes were continually turned back to Jerusalem in the promised land of his people. The broken down city that he came from was where his heart truly was. Let's read on in verse 2 of Nehemiah chapter 1. 
Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped. He's talking about the guys who had left under Zerubbabel and Ezra, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. Verse 3, and they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. They are in trouble, buddy. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, this verse 4, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah had a tender heart for the things of God. He was moved by the plight of those in Jerusalem. Because essentially, what they're saying here is the Jews are a laughingstock. They were criticized by their enemies, and they had to bear the hate of those around them with no protection from that. And this was not the will of God for his people. And that fact is what moved Nehemiah to mourning, fasting, and prayer. Nehemiah was not preoccupied with Babylon, and he had a firm grip on reality. He understood very clearly what the problem was. There's no wall. There's no protection in Jerusalem. And he asks for a full report concerning Jerusalem. And that makes me really like this guy because he comes in and he is a problem solver. And we see in his approach, it's give me the facts, guys. Okay, what's the situation in Jerusalem? Don't sugarcoat it for me. What's going on in Jerusalem? Babylon didn't distract Nehemiah from his purpose and his identity. His heart sought after God's purpose, and he was moved to meet the needs of God's people. And it makes me ask, how aware am I of the needs in my life? Not my needs, but the needs that are around me, of my family, my coworkers. How aware are we of the needs of our spouse, of students that we may teach, or friends? Are we aware, really, of the details of their situation? If they're going through a hard time, do we know? Do we sweep needs and problems under the rug and refuse to deal with them instead of clearly looking at what the need is? The high priest Eli was like this in the Old Testament. His sons were wicked, and he refused to address the problem. And he refused to, excuse me, refused to address the problems in his own house. Because of this, God came to Samuel as a child in the night, and he pronounces judgment on Eli's house. Because Eli refuses to get his sons in order and to acknowledge there's a problem, we need to take care of it. And God's judgment came. We can only grow and accomplish God's purpose when, like Nehemiah, we purpose to be aware of the needs of those around us. We cannot afford to be blind or to ignore the problems and the needs around us. We have to be aware and then with God work to fix the problem. Nehemiah was personally concerned with the needs of those in Jerusalem. He didn't say, you know, that's your problem. I'm living the good life in Babylon. I'm really important. I can't you know, I can't deal with your problems. I'm sorry that you're in Jerusalem and, and people are laughing at you and people are, you know, you're in danger, but I, you know, that's not my problem. That's your problem. Nehemiah was called to build the wall, but first he wept over the ruins. The state of Jerusalem caused him to mourn. He was safe. He was protected in the stronghold of the Babylonian Empire. It would be really easy to identify with people in Jerusalem when you're in Jerusalem and you don't know if you're going to live to see the next day because your enemies are all around you. But he's safe, he's protected, and still he feels the burden of the people in Jerusalem and has compassion on them. And until he had felt this burden of compassion, he couldn't fix anything. It was this burden that led Nehemiah to action, and he knew what the appropriate action was. And that was he took his problem to God first. Let's look at verse 4 again, the end of it. He fasted and he prayed. Often our first response, maybe not yours, it's mine for sure, it's my first response, is to try to figure it out or try to fix it on my own. Okay, how do we fix this? What do we do? The wall's broken down in Jerusalem. What are we going to do to fix it? Well, our problems will not completely be solved until we take them to God in prayer. And it's kind of counterintuitive because there's a problem 
Let's act to fix it. But prayer takes us away from that action. We have to take it to God first. And what seems like, okay, I'm not fixing the problem, is actually the best thing we can do to fix the problem. Because we begin to tap into someone who is stronger than we are. There are battles that we cannot win and things that we can't fix without the help of the Lord. And that can be difficult to acknowledge, to say there's things I can't do. And I understand this in a crisis, but I can forget it in the day-to-day. But Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Whether or not I think something is a spiritual battle, building the wall of Jerusalem was a very physical problem. It wasn't a spiritual problem. It was a very physical problem. But taking it to the one who has all power ensures that all my bases are covered for the job ahead. And I can rest assured that he will work for my good in whatever situation I am, I'm in. The problems that seem impossible and confrontations that, are, that arise and people who are unmoving and unchanging must be dealt with in prayer. There's nothing I can do. I have to take it to the Lord in prayer. So let's look at Nehemiah's prayer. In verse 5, he approaches God in praise and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Nehemiah knew who he was talking to. He worked for the most powerful man on earth. But he knew King Artaxerxes was weak compared to God. And prayer helps us put things in the proper perspective. It lifts our eyes to see things like God sees them. I'm reminded of Elisha praying that his servant's eyes would be open. His servant runs to him and says, we're surrounded. They're going to kill us. There's armies everywhere. What are we going to do, Elisha? And what does Elisha do? He says, Lord... Open his eyes that he can see. And the servant saw the armies of the Lord that were greater than any enemy that was coming against them. And that's what prayer does. It may not be the literal, I open my eyes and I see angels and the armies of God standing around me. But in the spiritual sense, it does lift just like I lift up my head physically. It lifts my spiritual eyes to remind me who's in control. In verses 6 and 7, then Nehemiah repents. Verse 6, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open. Lord, hear us, see our problem, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel. Lord, I'm here for your people, and we have messed up, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee. And have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Kind of seems like, I don't know, that's not how I would want to put my resume in if I was wanting somebody to help me. Lord, I need you to help me, and here's all the things that I've done against you. Sorry about that. But that's what Nehemiah does. He recognizes we've messed up, we've sinned, and he accepts responsibility for his part of the problem. The reason we're in captivity is because we turned from our God. So he speaks on behalf of the nation of Israel and their sin. Now this is hundreds of years of sin that he is repenting for. Sins that happened before he was even born, he is repenting for. And it can be very easy to blame another party when there's a problem. I think we would all agree about that. Well, what, you know, when you're a kid and your mom says, what happened? And you're in a fight. What's the easiest thing to do? Well, they started it, and I had to finish it. So, you know, I'm just going to shove off responsibility on this other person. It can be very easy to blame someone, but Nehemiah avoids that. And what does he do? He simply says, we've messed up, and I'm part of that because this is my people, the people of Israel. And, Lord, I ask for your forgiveness for what we have done. Next, Nehemiah claims the promises of God. In verses 8 to 10, he says, Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, 
If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. This was the promise. This was the deal, the covenant, the agreement that Israel made with their God. If you go against me, if you go against the law of Moses that's detailed in the Old Testament, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though, th though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, you could be in the four corners of the earth, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Nehemiah is quoting Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30. These are the promises the Lord made to his people. And he claims this promise. Lord, you said if we turn to you, you would gather your people back after the time of their captivity. God does not lightly give out promises. What he has promised, we can be assured of, and we can boldly claim in faith. And finally, Nehemiah presents his request in verse 11. We've gone through all of the opening arguments, all of the opening ceremonies, and we get down to the meat of it in verse 11. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants. There's more than just me. We're all praying for this, Lord, who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee. Give us success. Prosper thy servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's speaking of the king there. Grant me mercy in the sight of my employer, for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah makes a very bold request. He wants to be involved in the solution to the problem. This wasn't something to shove off on someone else. Nehemiah made himself available to God to meet the need if that was what God desired. His prayer that will get the job done includes the conviction of, I'm available, Lord. I am ready and willing to do what needs to be done. The wall is broken down in Jerusalem. Lord, give me favor that I can go fix it. Prayer was important in the life of Nehemiah, and it is just as crucial for our lives as well. Why is prayer so important? Well, I'm glad you asked. Number one, first off, prayer makes me wait. I can't be working to fix the problem, we talked about this, in my own strength while I'm praying. I can't be trying to come up with my own solution when I'm taking the situation to the Lord. I have to leave it there with him. Lord, this is the problem, and I need your help fixing it. We can see how much waiting Nehemiah had to do in chapter 2 and verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. Now, I thought Nisan was just a car but it's also a month, apparently. In between chapters 1 and 2, from at the beginning of chapter 1, he gives the month. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, he gives the month. Four months go by with Nehemiah praying and nothing seeming to change. In that little turn of the page or the little line in your Bible between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Nehemiah, that's four months that have gone by. And nothing has changed. However, the favorite prayer that seems to go, Lord, give me patience. I want it now. It wasn't true of Nehemiah. He had the patience to wait. And a prayer warrior must learn the patience of waiting and acknowledge that we're not running on my schedule, unfortunately. As much as I would like to keep this operation moving at my pace, we're not moving at my pace. And even though nothing changed in those four months, Nehemiah was faithful to pray. So we read on in verse 1, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. I was just doing my job. I was going about the day. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. The second thing that prayer does is it clears my vision. Seemingly impossible circumstances are no need for despair or discouragement because I know who I'm depending on. The third thing that prayer does is it quiets my heart. Nehemiah makes a point in verse 1. He points out that he wasn't sad in the king's presence. He wasn't moping around the palace until God decided to work out the problem. Well, Lord, you've promised us you're going to take us back to Jerusalem. Just let me weep in front of my employer for the next four months, and maybe he'll figure out there's a problem. 
That wasn't what he was doing. There was a peace that passed all understanding that let Nehemiah rest assured without fear and without sadness that God was going to take care of him. Lord, this is a problem I can't fix. I'm leaving it with you, and I'm just going to keep bringing it to you until you decide to fix it. This note of Nehemiah's daily condition also shows us the last important quality of prayer, and that is that prayer activates my faith. Faith in God produces a quietness of heart. Because when nothing is impossible, there's nothing to worry about. Once Nehemiah mastered learning to wait, he could peacefully go about his job in the king's palace, knowing the Lord was going to take care of him. However, everyone has a bad day every now and then. And some days, my face just serves as a billboard for my emotions. And Nehemiah had one of those days. We can read about it in chapter 2, verse 2. So in verse 1, he says, I had not been sad in the king's presence for four months. Up to this point, I was good. I was Pollyanna in the palace. But in verse 2, wherefore the king said unto me, why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? You're healthy. Why are you sad? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. Nehemiah admits to being afraid. He's honest. That's another character plus. And for good reason. Because the king could kill anyone who displeased him for any reason. They didn't have constitutional rights. They didn't have trial by jury. None of that back in the day. The king didn't like you. You were raining on his parade by being sad. He could kill you. And Nehemiah is afraid. Furthermore, Artaxerxes had a reputation of being impossible to change. But changing a heart is God's specialty. And this shows us Nehemiah's wisdom in choosing prayer as his method of operation. He knew if he went directly to the king, probably wasn't going to change anything. So he went to the one above the king and trusted him to change Artaxerxes' heart. He knew that the only one who could change the king was his all-powerful God. So that's who he petitioned. And verses 3 to 4 of chapter 2 give us Nehemiah's response to the king. And I said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? What are you asking for, Nehemiah? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And this is the critical point that Nehemiah has been waiting for. What do you want, man? Just like Cyrus, the heart of Artaxerxes was in the hand of the Lord, and now he was answering Nehemiah's prayers. And Nehemiah's response is to pray again. I mean, if it's not broke, let's not fix it at this point. Lord, you've brought me this far. Now help me say what's going to be acceptable to the king. Let's read on in verse 5. And I said unto the king, if it pleases the king, and if thy servant has found favor in your sight, here's my request, that thou wouldest send me unto Jerusalem, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. Let me go back to my home, that I can rebuild it. And the king responds in verse 6. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? At that point, I feel like you have to hit the staples button. Like, oh, that was easy. Like, we waited four months, and it was just, okay, how long are you going to be gone? And uh, when are you going to be back? And so from this, we can gather that Nehemiah is a pretty good employee. The king wants to know, yes, you can go, but I want to know when you're going to be back. Because I really, you know, I really like working with you, and I would like to have you back to make sure that I don't die. He wasn't looking for an excuse to get rid of Nehemiah. So he must have trusted Nehemiah and valued his work ethic. Let's look at the last part of verses 6 and 9. So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. There was a long way of travel between Babylon and Jerusalem. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. He's asking for resources. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. 
Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Nehemiah was a man with a plan. He wasn't only praying during those four months of waiting. He was planning. Why? Because he had faith that God was going to come through on his promise. So when the king asks, Nehemiah can tell him, this is how long I'll be gone. I've calculated it in four months. I know how long I'm going to be gone. Also, I'm going to need letters to show that you've approved of this project and that you've approved me to move throughout the empire. Also, I'm going to need timber to build the wall and a house for myself because I have nowhere to live. This is my home. I'm going to need timber for a house. And I'm also going to need letters to say that you approve of this project in case the people around Jerusalem start getting a little squirrely. I'm going to need all of your approval. This is a great picture of active faith. James said faith without works is dead. Nehemiah is a a brilliant picture of this because he planned with the assurance that God was going to come through for him. And the presence of faith did not mean the absence of organization. Lord, I trust you're going to come through. Lord, I trust you're going to come through. Oh, you did come through. Wow, now I have to do something. I wasn't really expecting that. No, Nehemiah expected and planned that the day, when the day came that the king said, you can go back to Jerusalem, he was all ready. Let's get this show on the road. And if Nehemiah would not have thought ahead, he would have been forced to turn around when the first person asked for proof that the king approved this project. Did the king say it was okay? Yeah. Did he give you a letter? No, but he said it was okay. Sorry, bud. You got to go back and get the letter. He was ready. He knew what he was going to need. And the king went above and beyond and even sent soldiers to protect Nehemiah during his travels. The end of verse 8 shows Nehemiah understood the cause of the king's response. It was according to the good hand of my God upon me. Nehemiah showed humility and thanksgiving to God for turning the heart of the king to be favorable towards Nehemiah. And I think it's sometimes easy to remember God when we're climbing the mountain, but it's easy to forget him when we're standing at the summit. Reminds me of the story of a man who was trapped on the train tracks and he couldn't get off. And a train starts coming down the tracks and he's trying and trying and he still can't get off the train tracks. So finally he starts praying as the train's getting closer and he starts promising God things, of course. You know, Lord, I'll do anything. I'll just get me off of these train tracks. And so at the last second, when he's committed to sell everything, to become a missionary, and to tell everyone that he meets about the Lord, and to become a completely different person, he is miraculously freed and jumps clear of the train just in time, only to stand up and say, never mind, God, I got it myself, thanks. So sometimes when we're in the struggle, it's easy to say, Lord, I'll do anything. I need help. I need help. But then when it's accomplished, we forget the one who is helping us to accomplish it. In the struggle, when I need something bigger than me, it's easy to remember to cry out to God. But when everything works out, pride makes it easy to try and credit success to myself instead of to the one who takes care of everything for me. And I'm so thankful that I have someone who's going to take care of everything for me. I feel like the Apostle Paul, that if I hoped only in myself, I would be of all people most miserable because I know my failings very clearly and I know that I am not enough for the situations that are presented for me. We close out Nehemiah's role as the cupbearer with a bit of an ominous cliffhanger in verse 10. Dun, dun, dun. You didn't know the Bible was so intense, did you? Verse 10 says, When Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, heard that Nehemiah was back in town, and was going to build the wall. It grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. This is like the quick, you know, teaser at the end of an episode where suddenly, but there's these two guys that are not happy with the project going forward. And we will see these two over and over again throughout the story of Nehemiah. Opposition to the work of rebuilding the wall was almost immediate. As soon as Nehemiah gets back to Jerusalem and says, we're going to build a wall. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) He says, we're going to build a wall. The guys get really upset. However, Nehemiah didn't waver. And sometimes 
Opposition doesn't mean that you're out of the will of God. In fact, it might mean that you're right in the middle of the will of God. How do you tell the difference? Well, you pray, of course. You follow Nehemiah's example and pray and ask the Lord for guidance. From Nehemiah's character as a cupbearer, I have the following prayer, and we have the following character bricks, if you will, that will help us model the character of Nehemiah. He was a prayer warrior. He went to God first with the problem. He went to God continually with the problem. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of faith. He had active faith and rest assured that the Lord was going to come through for him. His character provided for organization and planning. Number two and number three go right together. His faith and his works. He knew the Lord was going to come through, and so he planned out and counted the cost of what he was going to need before he started. Nehemiah had a strong work ethic. He was a valuable employee to the king. He also had a good attitude at work. Again, I had never been sad in the king's presence, and the king noticed something's different about you, man. Something's, you're sad today. What's up? He had a very good work ethic and was good at his job. The last part, he had a pleasant disposition. I, again, I hadn't been sad in the king's presence. Nehemiah was probably a pretty good guy to be around. If he had stuck with the king that long and the king wanted him back, he just, you get a picture of a guy who's organized and people want to be around him. It sounds like the picture of a leader. They're ready to follow him and go with him, and they want him in their organization. Okay, man, you're leaving. When are you going to be back? Because we need you here. He was pleasant to be around. And so my prayer is, Lord, help me model the character of Nehemiah, these character traits, these beginning building blocks that we're seeing in the life of Nehemiah. And I think it would be appropriate to make these a focus of prayer and personal efforts for our New Year's resolution. If you needed some, here you go. Let's try to be more like Nehemiah in these areas. Am I a person of prayer? Am I a person of faith? Do I see with God's eyes? Do I have active faith that organizes and plans? Am I pleasant to be around? That can be a dangerous question sometimes. Some days I make sure I don't ask that question because I can't handle the answer. Do I have a good work ethic? Am I a good employee? Am I a person of character in what I do with my life? Those questions as we examine our life will help us to model the character of Nehemiah. If you would all stand with me.